I'm your host, Rabbi Linda Schreiner Khan, and welcome to Tehillah Talks, where teens engage in honest conversation with their rabbi about what it means to be Jewish in the world today. Happy Passover. Welcome, Julian and Jasmine. Uh, clearly, you've just been through. Uh, a bunch of satyrs and uh, probably have some opinions about that. And so I want to get you, let's just with an opening salvo of Passover is uh, to me, what Passover is to me, and then we'll, we'll, we'll start playing around, talking around. That's kind of weird for me because um, weirdly Passover is like not that big of a deal in my family. Like when my grandparents were alive, it was. But, but now that everyone's dead, it's, like, the only people really in my Jewish side of the family that are alive are, like, younger generations. So it's, like, the tradition and, like, the traditional Seder hasn't been completely lost, but it's, like, yeah. Sleeping away? Yeah. Okay. And Julian, you went to... You yeah, had two. I, part of my family is Orthodox, so I go to a very intense, long Seder. And then I go to one that my mom throws that is much, much less intense. So I personally am kind of of the opinion that satyrs uh, seem a little superfluous. Is that the right word? Superf- superfluous. superfluous. So that's an interesting... Like ex- excessive and unnecessary. Almost mm-hmm. like... So I guess it depends ra- on the satyr. Ra- Rabbi uh, Neil Gilman, uh, blessed memory, was a professor of eschatology at, uh, at JTS, and he said that the Seder was both a didactic and a theatrical experience. What does didactic mean? Teaching. Teaching. It's, kind it's, of, yeah. it's definitely a teaching experience. And a know. good Seder needs to be a theatrical experience of some kind or another. Yeah. That's interesting that you say that, because actually one of my favorite Seder memories is um, like a year after my grandmother died... I was spending, like, the Passover season time spring with my friend and her family. We, we for a week, like, were in an Airbnb in Cambria, in California, and we did our Seder together, and we just, like, did a performance of, like, the story of Passover. I don't know. I was, like, 13, and um, it was really fun because we didn't really follow any rules, <laughs> and we just kind of, like, improv a scene but you told yeah. the story. Yeah, and we told the story. Yeah. I feel like it's it's probably the only holiday that tries to incorporate storytelling into meal planning, which <laughs> I, for me, for me, I feel like now that I'm 17 and I've been to these seders like 17 times, I'm a little preoccupied with when the food's going to arrive and stuff like that. There always has to be one person at the table yeah. who says... When do we eat? Yeah, I That's know. always me. Because I always forget, like, oh, like when I know that there's going to be a really big meal, I'll be like, oh, I'll prepare for it and, like, not eat a lot for, like, lunch or, like, whatever. Because, like, I expect that I'm going to have, like, three meals in one meal, you know? But that's always a mistake. And don't do that. Yes. Because... That's the first piece of advice from this. <laughs> always eat before the eat. Seder. Definitely and, eat. And the other thing that we do is we have the crudite as soon yeah. as we dip the uh Yeah. It's the, the only, parsley. like sorrow-themed meal also that I've encountered. Sorrow-themed? Well, like well, the it, tears. It, goes, the... it goes from sorrow to redemption. If... Well, even the even the matzah is a little... 
Sad? Yeah, a little yeah. sad, I would have to say. Like, <laughs> so compared to other pastries. It's like, not a pastry. It's not a croissant. It's not a baguette. It's a it's matzah. One yeah. day. One day. Oh, oh my goodness. I don't know. I, Is my, that the point? My, my, my real like my real issue with the Seder or whatever. <laughs> or whatever. <laughs> my my real like besides the meal and and all that is like because this isn't something I personally believed happened in history, mm-hmm. it feels a little phony almost to, you know, go through the whole motions of this holiday and be like, this is what slavery felt like. This is what redemption was like. This is like God did all these things. And then that really isn't the truth. And it feels like. So so here's a question. This one sec. So I don't know what you mean by truth. I mean truth. Like I, I mean, no, I don't know what you mean by truth. Well, look, here's, is, here's is the only I, truth that which yeah. has really happened, <laughs> or is the truth something that is an internal reality? Well, I think this is a this is very clear to me. Like this is a story. We are kind of expected to read the Bible and the Torah as things that have happened in real life. It depends choose, who you are. I choose not to do that. Yeah, who, but but that I depends know. who you are. I choose I not a... to do that, but I think this the whole like the whole point of the seder is that like this was literally our ancestors who went through this literal situation, and we're retelling that story year after year. And to me, when there's a limited. Uh, validity to that retelling it feels like it's kind of taking something away from the people who are like actually still enslaved in 2019 i hear you (laughs) no like i agree somewhat but i also think that it can be i think like the way i view the story of passover is like a reminder to be empathetic of people who are going through the situation now, if that makes sense. Like, I think some people can't, like, empathy doesn't always come naturally, and you have to put yourself in the situation. Like, you have to be like, this was me. You know, it's like almost metaphorical. Yeah. It doesn't you have to, and, it's, and it's work. I, yeah. I, I definitely have the feeling that that, that added meaning, that, like, yeah, I admit that the Seder is also about empathy and like and, right. and feeling for others, but it does it does very much feel like the point is this was our people who were enslaved. Well, so the thing is, how do you develop empathy? It only the truth is people who are most empathetic when they've gone through something themselves. It's as if. And so there are two pieces to that transaction. One is at the Seder we're told you shall tell the story to your children. And it should be as if each and every one of us left Egypt. And we're told, which I, this is the part that gets me every year when we read this. It's from Deuteronomy. To the driven of the earth, we link ourselves today as we fulfill the mitzvah. So to the driven of the earth, right? We start by identifying with those people who were driven from their homelands, which right now, holy cow, this is so... Yeah. On the money. And then and then we read over and over and over again. In every generation, each person should feel as though he or herself had gone forth from Egypt. As it is written, you shall explain to your child on that day. It is because of Adonai, what Adonai did for me when I myself went forth from Egypt. Still, we remember it was we who were slaves, we who were strangers. And therefore, we recall these words to as well. Mm-hmm. You shall not oppress a stranger, for you know the feelings of the stranger, having been a stranger in the land of Egypt. When a stranger resides with you in your land, you shall not wrong him. You shall love him as yourself. 
for you were strangers in the land of Egypt. To me, that's the core meaning of this whole storytelling is put yourself well, right there. Well, to me, I mean, I totally get that. Like, obviously that meaning is very explicit throughout the Seder, but to me, I feel like we've picked almost like the clip from this, from the story of the Jews, like of Abraham almost, like we picked the clip where God like most decisively takes our side. You know what I mean by, by that? And I think there's an implicit connotation of the Seder that the Jews are special. You know, you never read any stories about people who are enslaved and God frees them besides the Seder. You know what I'm saying? I, that, that's an yeah. important point to me. I think that like with any religious thing or anything, really, I don't know, it doesn't have to, that's really broad, but the other one was too specific and I don't have a middle ground. Um, <laughs> I think like with anything... It's really depends on how you choose to interpret it because you can read the story of Passover as a reminder to, you know, treat people with respect because you know what it was like to go through oppression or you can view it as like, we're so cool that like we, you know. I I have to say, I think most people probably take the message that the Jews are kind of it and the, the chosen people. Mm-hmm. Like, I feel like that's actually the message that people are really absorbing from this holiday. Really? In my personal experience. Yeah. Yeah, and I, I also feel like it's the message that's most prevalent in our culture as Jewish people. Like, that, so, that so, more so, than so, being empathetic is the thing that people espouse. So I, I guess maybe, maybe because I'm a first-generation American, mm-hmm. right? I mean, that changes the whole yeah. transaction. Having my, my parents and then... Later on, my mom in particular, every year, she would tell one of her many stories about leaving Europe, Mm -hmm. right? And so, and running away and the fact that the rest of the family didn't make it. That sense of being an oppressed people was, was tangible, was real, was immediate. And unfortunately today, I mean, I would say for the last 30 years, anti-Semitism in a loud voice has not been the case. It's been incredibly muted. It still exists, but it's been incredibly muted. And all of a sudden, we find ourselves in a situation where, once more, it is writ large, There, are both on the left and on the right, anti-Semitism is, is out there. It's real. It's not... It's not hidden. So, yes, I understand what you're saying because there's a sense of being comfortable in America and yeah. why worry, right? That's part of what you're saying. Well, you mentioned you mentioned anti-Semitism. And, like, a point I kind of want to bring up is I feel like, yes, there's the parts of racism and anti-Semitism that are vocal and physical and that we can identify very easily. But there's also, like, the, the implicit biases that we all have mm-hmm. that like we we really do view the world through the lens of race and and kind of and bias and to me that's that's way more important almost or not way more important but that's also a crucial factor and we're and we're also um complicit in that in a way so to me yeah. i feel like what bothers me about the satyrs even though you can say yes we're being empathetic and yes we're inviting the stranger into our home and all this those aren't real actions. Those those are just things that you can say. No, 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 no. I, the Seder was in at last night. My friend Jerry, he there was a guy on Broadway who he saw uh, on a regular basis, and he would schmooze with him. And 
we were about 20 some odd people and this older gentleman came to the Seder and his wife said who is he well that's Bob who I talk to every day on Broadway that's beautiful and and there he was at the Seder and it was awesome and he and let me tell you this man could tell a joke uh (laughs) it was made real that sense of inviting a stranger into your home I mean but I don't think the majority of people do that. You know what I mean? I like, think, yeah, but this I think year there's, been a, there's also been a real push this year for people to do that. Well, yeah, I don't think I can really speak on, like, the majority of people, though, because I didn't really grow up around a lot of other Jewish people. And my concept of, like, what Judaism is is, like, my family and Tehillah. So, but in my experience, I guess it just depends on what you've experienced. So it doesn't necessarily mean that the majority views doesn't view Passover in like a like I know my family has always viewed it as and also viewed like Jewish experience in general as like um being not only should we focus on like focusing on things that have happened to Jewish people things that have happened to you personally or things that have happened to your people like problems that you've faced that should be something that you use in order to empathize with other people who are going through um, struggles. And that's what I've always been taught. So, I mean, if there's been... I wrote this whole paper on, like, Jewish-American assimilation and stuff like that and how Judaism and, like, Christian normativity and, like, how American Judaism is... I I wrote a thing. Um, (laughs) But it's, like, there's... There is... I'm not... Regardless of whether or not it's the majority, I guess it's... It doesn't matter because you get to choose how you view it or you get to choose what you... Mm-hmm. What meaning you want to bring into yeah. it. I think that's what Rabbi Gilman was talking about is that the didactic part, the teaching part, it really depends on who's leading that Seder yeah. as to what it is they want to... what, what mm-hmm. they want to highlight and push up and, and what kind of conversation you want to have. And the same thing is how do you make it dynamic is the theatricality of it and the, the fact that it has an order, has a spine, but yet you play with that spine. Yeah. We did two satyrs. They were totally different. Yeah. So I, I don't know. I You're hitting on my favorite holiday, so I apologize. <laughs> no, it's Israel. It's my favorite holiday. My children think I'm a little nuts that it's my favorite holiday. Uh, but... I think part of it is that that exceptional quality, if you don't think that you, Julian, that you are exceptional, that you're unique, that you're special. I, <laughs> I know, but that that's a really important piece of self-worth. I mean, no, no, I, I do think that in a sense I am special, but I think in a much more practical sense, I'm totally not special. No, but, but my, my point is something else, is that going back to the Hillel dicta of if I'm not for myself, who am I? And if I'm only for myself, what am I? If we don't recognize that we as individuals are special and have something to offer, our ability to help others is made much, much smaller, mm-hmm. our capacity. Because people who, who think they're nothing feel they have no power, no agency, no yeah. ability to move the dial. Yeah, I mean, I kind of want to... Okay, I mean, I, I totally take your points, but I think what I dislike about the Seder is what I dislike about Judaism, almost, in a way. And, mm-hmm. like, is my complaint about a lot of the a lot of what dominates Judaism from my perspective is like this, this philosophy or 
this perspective that we're unique and special and we alone have suffered through these like unique events and that it's almost fate that like we're, it's almost fate that we're so special and that we have this mm-hmm. destiny and the special connection to God. And that's, that's something that I see a lot of Jewish people like personally believe, but also I think part of Judaism that people in America put forward is Israel. And I think that to me has a lot to do with this holiday kind of like the idea that God promised us that we would be like a numerous prosperous nation. And also to me, I see, I see a contradiction between like this empathetic message of the Seder and like how Jews engage with the world. I don't see so, this. So part of, part we're of not that, an evangelical. No, 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 not, not at all. That, and I think that know. by conflating the two, conflating the modern world with the Seder is a problem. Mm-hmm. Israel as a nation is a comparatively recent entity. And it's not as any nation state in the world today is flawed and it's not exceptional. Mm-hmm. Right? We're not but we're not just talking about drawing the, on the same narrative. But 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 I was gonna say something else. I think the Israel that's mentioned in the Haggadah is that shining city on a hill which the pilgrims believed in which you know it it is that that uh pushing for perfection right and what we have in the narrative is these people who are anything but perfect who are always screwing it up who are always complaining uh and so to me that narrative has a lot to do with reality is that we human beings try to get it right but so often as not, we just fall flat on our faces. And boy, can I relate to that. Yeah. So, yes, I understand what you're saying. And, and it's it's that I think what you're you're bumping up against is there's only one way to see things. Yeah. I feel like people are way too lazy to see nuance, actually. Like, well, <laughs> I think you're giving people too much credit. Yeah. But, but on the other hand, I'm sorry. I'm, I, I'm giving okay. uh, one more thing, Jasmine, and then I'll give you a chance to speak. <laughs> I'm so excited about this topic, uh, <laughs> is that the Haggadah is the only book that I can think of Jewishly that gets new versions published every single year. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it's crazy. This year, I haven't got seen my copy of it yet, I'm going to buy one, is the new graphic novel Haggadah, uh, which tells me, the fact that there's a new one published every year tells me that there is a there multitude of viewpoints. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I just feel like, I don't know, again, I don't really know a lot. Like, I've never experienced people with that sort of viewpoint, but I also have a really narrow experience. So, um, yeah. um, but like, I feel like that is not, that doesn't mean that there's anything inherently wrong or i don't know if that's a problem with judaism is it or is it a problem you you mentioned you mentioned like coming to america and assimilation and i feel like in the modern world the these narratives of of exceptionality and all of those things like they kind of become inadequate in my opinion and like i think we start we need i see at least in my own personal experiences with the seder a need to reinterpretate and need to create new meaning. And mm-hmm. I also feel, I feel like there needs to be a new meaning added to this relationship with God that we see, we see in the Seder. Like Absolutely. you can't just be one of, 
of we're we're lucky God chose us because everybody else is you know screwed. No, I agree with you because yeah. that's in that kind of like doggy dog world is creates so but, many. But the, the uh, one way of understanding chosenness, it's just one way, is that you have an obligation. You have an obligation so to you have an obligation. No, but you have an obligation to treat people in an honorable fashion. If that's the obligation, then we have failed. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We have failed in our obligation that's of chosenness. That's how I've always viewed it. Like, the chosen one thing, that's how I always viewed it. It wasn't, like, anything. I think if you interpret, like, the chosen people thing as, like, you're better than other people, then that's, like, completely but, antithetical. But isn't, no, isn't not, the chosen people, we're referring to when God is speaking to Abraham and Joseph. And no, it's not, it's, not, no, it's not to these, Abraham. He doesn't no, say it to Abraham at all. I don't to know anything. He says it. Uh, and, and God, it's not he. God, that's it, it comes she, out uh, really at Sinai, and it's uh, a, it's the covenantal relationship, and and the thing is, the reason that it's it's there's a duality to it is Yitz Greenberg says that we're now living in the time of the third covenant post Holocaust. In that, after the Holocaust, the Jews who were remaining could have said, I'm done. Thank you very much. Six million died. Others are shattered. We're finished. No more. And the fact that Judaism has continued in any form is people saying, yes, I choose to be in this interaction Mm -hmm. with the divinity. How that's defined is a great, great range, Mm -hmm. right? And I don't know. I, I think... This idea of chosenness is is the reconstructionist movement throws it out, says mm-hmm. there's no such thing as chosenness. Mm-hmm. We are this is a historical relationship. Yeah. I see it as an obligation to behave in the world in a particular manner. I think we I just, all take I just it don't on. Think that's a, how our ancestors interpret it. I'm going to be honest with you. I I don't see that. Um, I don't see. I'm in. Also, which I'm, ancestors? How far are you going back? To to whoever, whatever Jews were in Egypt, if that even happened. You know what I'm saying? But I also find it very interesting that there's this like there's this contractual written down relationship with God. But doesn't God like not even want to for people to see His face almost? Like, so here's is, uh, that's something I remember. So that's an interesting thing. I had a conversation with a student. To me, other, writing something down is like almost even more. Mm-hmm. Well, well, is that some people need more structure than others. Mm-hmm. Human beings strive for structure and ritual. Yeah. And we've we've transformed some of that ritual behavior of of, of offerings into prayer. Mm-hmm. Some of the rituals are are made present when we have a Seder, but we're not. We're not slaughtering a lamb, everybody. We're not pay, you know. We're not yeah. putting blood on the door. We're we're dipping our finger into cups of wine to talk about the plagues and the blood and the, and yeah. And the conversation we had last night was really interesting about are we are we taking away when we take the blood out of the I mean the blood the wine out of the cup and <laughs> and, and and drip it uh, for the plagues are we empathizing are we caring about the what happened to the egyptians mm-hmm. or I think are, it's a little bit of both yeah or are we saying <laughs> you know well i'm, I'm I mean, after you right well we even this holiday is passover and i think that to me like is very striking because god is god is passing over all of the jewish households sparing them and taking the firstborn of the egyptians and to me to me i think we like I personally feel like even when we're kind of condemning the Pharaoh and condemning the Egypt, the Egyptians to God's wrath, 
in a way we know that we too could easily be victims of it. And we have. And we, you know. So it's interesting that the rabbis wrote a midrash because this coming Saturday we would be reading, uh, well, actually not because of when the holiday, during the holiday we read the Song of the Sea, right? Where it talks about how the Egyptians were swallowed up by the waters of the Sea of Reeds. Mm-hmm. And then there's a poem that, that Moses reads and, and Miriam leads the women in dancing. And the Midrash says, the angels were rejoicing and God said, stop. Yeah. Stop. These are my children. Mm-hmm. Even when I say it, to me, that is so powerful yeah. that the rabbis could say, no, 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 no. Wait a second, wait a second. We're talking about people here. And that and that's so embedded in our tradition that yeah, we worry about ourselves, but if we but it has to be bigger. God is an internationalist. I yeah. like that. <laughs> yeah. This is like slightly off topic, but sort of like what we were saying before about statistics and how people are turning to statistics and you don't realize that every human like every person who is in a statistic like a death toll um, was a unique was a real per- yeah. individual yeah. who could not be replaced. And I just feel like, like regardless of like, it's sort of, um, I can't remember where I heard this, but it's like, regardless of who the victim is, like this is still a crime or like, this is still, it's a world. Yeah. Our tradition says yeah. a life is a world. Mm-hmm. And when you destroy a life, you're destroying a whole world. Mm-hmm. But I feel like, I, I know, but all of these things that are, like, that are professed, like, beliefs of our religion, I don't see coming into fruition. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? I don't think, you know, to bring it back to Israel, like, there, there are people who are illegal immigrants in Israel that are being, like, kept in, in camps in the middle of the desert. They have no documents. They, you know, they're they're subjected to an awful process. And I I feel like there are, there are Jews everywhere that are reading this story that are absorbing these messages or absorbing these messages and then acting against it. And I find I find there there to be a limitation to how powerful these myths can be for real. And the, and the problem... And when yeah, when I, we're speaking about biblical events. I, I don't disagree with you. I think you're putting it sort of on my shoulders as a teacher. It's my job yeah. to take it out of that place of being, well, yeah, duh. Uh, kind of situation. I'm saying this has meaning. This has impact. This this means that you need to take action in the world. Um, my relatives who are uh, who are in Israel, and they, they're very upset about this last election. Um, now, some people here in this podcast may not agree, but that's not the point. They're very upset. They're, and they're doing, and they're they're well to do. Israelis for doing everything they can, but in the same way that there are people in this country who feel that the moral imperative, forget about the political, the moral imperative that we once believed to be part of the fabric of how we live is being torn asunder. And no, I, you know, and how do you get past that? I I don't know. I personally, I personally feel whenever somebody says like, oh, this and that is, is being destroyed in the modern age. Like I have to always question that. And I feel like that's almost the least 
no, no offense, but like that's the that to me is like the least inventive way to think about history in the future is that you know these things that are given are somehow not existing. Well, but I what it and is to me, I feel like for for the Holocaust to have happened. You know, for the past to have happened, people were also morally conflicted back then. I don't think. Yeah, I, I think, think of anything. We think we have the luxury of of talking about morality and talking about moral compasses like now. Uh, so so that's because enjoy. right because they, they, they couldn't do it. I don't think that was then. as strong as a motivation for people who you know were living in comparative poverty to what we have now or who were struggling that's with true. real life. That's that. absolutely true. Yeah, no, uh, that's but, a but it, it's right, and it's the luxury of. Nation builders, mm-hmm. and when you read Jefferson, he had the luxury mm-hmm. to do that, to think about yeah. it, and to argue with Adams and Frank. Like they could yeah. have that argument because they were well to do, and they weren't worrying about where the next meal was coming from. Yes. Well, yeah. but beyond that, I think that people. <laughs> sorry, if this is going to get controversial, but in America today, like um, a lot of people are saying that this is the worst it's ever been in our country. Like, I've heard that a lot. And I think people are saying that because this is the worst it has ever been... In your lifetime? ...for white Americans. <laughs> like, well, that's... in this country. Because, like, it's... If you're going to say this is the worst it's been... It's, you're seeing this now. Like, as, like, a... Because before, we had people who were literally enslaved in our country. We had the KKK terrorizing people. It's like, I... It I would is, say that 100 years ago, things were pretty lousy. 100 years ago. Things, from wait, a, I'm because, just going to say this, but, like, things have always been lousy. There was yeah, never a point in history yeah. when, like, people were... When it was... Everything was like, great. No, I To me, I also, like, read a book about this, but we are living in the statistically, like, least violent least least impoverished era in human history that's true we we truly do live on on the like we truly do live in in a new unprecedented era in human history and i think we lose sight of that when we start talking about moralities have been lost like things have been lost and to me i i think you should question whether those things were even there and with the Haggadah, i feel like we're kind of we have our noses in this ancient story about about Jewish sufferance. And we're we're not looking and engaging with the real world that's outside that has plenty of things. Well, like so the thing, the question then is, how do you bring the real world in at, at yeah, the well, same time? you have to do what your friend yeah. did. And I, I've, I personally don't think most people are going to do that. I think that what I was trying to say, and I'm not, I know I'm not um, articulating this well, but we can't look towards the past as examples because we romanticize it. And we feel like it was better than it was because because in history, like who writes history? Who writes textbooks? Like European, like, your, <laughs> yeah, like literally. literally. <laughs> um, and so we can't look to that as something that we need to return to. We have to try to create something new, and that's I think that's what like progress is not regression. And I think too often the rhetoric. And progressive movements can accidentally be about regression. Like we need to return to our. Oh yeah, like, well yeah, yeah, that's that's, and that's not, going back. We we, yeah. we we have that that tagline now. Also right? to like to go back as you guys were saying, I I do like I have to admit I do think there is something beautiful about the Seder and about you know having all of those like objects and telling that story. I do think there's something in intrinsically worthwhile in that tradition, but I'm just saying like. I feel like, like you're saying, I feel a disconnect almost. I feel a lack of, of potency. And I feel like, I feel like even though 
it's very easy to read those words and say, yeah, invite the stranger into your home. But I think your friend is the minority and actually taking that literally is an imperative. Like, well, we, we, we have, I mean, we've done it in other years. We do it. It's, it's what you do. Yeah. No, also, you always also, have room for I know, another I know. person. But I think uh, there's, there's also a limit to Judaism in the sense that everybody who's Jewish is Jewish. You know what I mean? We've already restricted ourselves to this subgroup. And it's already, it's by restricting ourselves, it's already like not really about reaching out. Do you know what I mean by that? I don't like, think that's for true. Us to, for us to create a new meaning for our holiday that is all about reaching out and and so, accepting the stranger, it's it's almost in a way kind of... How many, oh, so, so the question also is, at the Seder, at the Seder you go to, are there people who are not Jewish at the Seder? Uh, I mean, not my uncles, but I'm mine. That's I mean, weird. My dad, I've my dad never is, heard of that. Like, like, oh, my dad, my dad is not Jewish. Yeah. That's, yeah. But I mean, at, at, you know, right, at our Seders, there are always people who are not yeah. Jewish at our Seders. I, and they're the ones who ask some of the best questions mm-hmm. and, and bring us to another place. And I, I don't know. I think part of the Seder, the, the, the roots, the, the fabric of the Seder is the Greek symposia, right? So that was a time of drinking. Yeah. <laughs> Guys drinking, eating, and arguing philosophy. So That sounds awful. <laughs> <laughs> well, that, but that's, and, and to take it and elevate it. Yeah. And one of the reasons we don't have the story of, of that's found in the Bible in the Haggadah is the assumption was that everybody knew that story. So what you have is a discourse and you have argument and you have questions and you have um, a good Seder is one where you're pulling at each other and saying, exactly. So you're saying, I don't yeah. see the meaning here. Can you tell me what this means to me? Come on, give me an answer, yeah. <laughs> right? Do yeah. it now. I think that's a really important voice at a Seder. Mm-hmm. My, my dad actually said something interesting. He was saying, I feel like this is an origin story, but we're starting halfway through it. And I thought that was really interesting because I feel like so much of the Seder's, like, the Seder's punchline has to do with if you understand the what came before it and what came after it in terms of a, a, the context of the Torah. And I feel like as a standalone, like as a standalone religious story, there's so much missing. And I personally don't really read too much into the rest of the Torah. And I only really get this moment. And it leaves a lot of open like right. questions. Right, kind of because stretch. how many people observe Shavuot, which is the giving of the... Yeah. Of, of, that's many, yes. I think, though, what I was trying to say was that all of these points aren't inherent and they can be improved upon. You know, this isn't something inherent. It's something that is conditional. Like, even if I don't, I really can't speak on this, but like, even if the majority of people do believe that, that's not something that's an inherent belief. There is no inherent belief, you know? So it's not, if... I feel like if you see a problem, you can work to change it. Yeah. Or I think yeah. it's something that I think it's something that people do work to change, mm-hmm. and we all can in our daily lives. The, I don't know. Sorry, that was really cheesy. Um, well, but, <laughs> well, it's about the seder is an opportunity to make meaning, whether or not a particular family takes that opportunity to create meaning. That's really on them, because it is the most home based ritual. Of all Jewish rituals. Yeah, I like I, that. I like how yeah. it's kind of something that we can all, like, it's a family private event that you're kind of doing. Mm-hmm. Like, there's no Nobody, nobody there's looking no over you. Yeah. Nobody yeah, looking at me going, 
hey, you know. Yeah. To me, it does matter a lot that, like, this this isn't something that scholars can prove happened. Absolutely. Does, does it matter or it does matter? It does matter a lot to me because it isn't, it isn't, to me, it's not like a lot of the other stories in the Torah. It's something that we're really, it, we're really explicitly being asked to, like, engage ourselves in and put and empathize with our ancestors and put ourselves in that position. And the fact that it's not really based in fact makes me question why the religion, why the holiday was created in the first place. So basically, the Jewish calendar is an agricultural calendar. Yeah. This is a spring harvest holiday. Okay. Basically, that has layers upon it, right? And those layers are clearly biblical, and they came, when's the lambing season? Now. Oh, yeah, I was like, I have no clue. No, now is the time (laughs) for lambs to be born. Not a lamb farmer. All right, so... It's, it's a convergence of all of that. The other thing is, last year, was it last year, I think? No, two years ago, Diane, Dr. Diane Sharon taught about the battle between Moses and Pharaoh as a battle between uh, one who is a proponent of a monotheistic God and another uh, who had this whole system of gods in, in Egypt because each of the plagues relates to another Egyptian deity. That's very interesting. That's really cool. Well, also, one of, the, one of the things that um, I'm actually, I was just listening to a podcast about ancient Egypt, but something that's really interesting is that like monotheism is a very divisive religion. So to people who believe in multiple gods, because pretty much if you don't believe in, in the Hebrew God, then you're wrong. And one of the reasons that actually Egyptians embraced Christianity so easily was like, it was a trinity and Egyptian gods come in pairs and, and trios, which I thought was very interesting. Like in well, you the, also have, you the also cosmology have... of Moses is like more or less threatening the very validity of of the Pharaoh's religion. And also the Pharaoh is, is the living um, embodiment of Horus. So like for him to be proved fallible is pretty it's much... huge. Like, yeah, it's, it's a huge, huge thing. Huge. And it's like we, we always are like, wait, why did Pharaoh say yes and then say no? And then all... I think it probably has a lot to do with that. Yeah, because he was godlike. Yeah, he was. He was an embodiment of a god. Yeah, I mean, for us, uh, yes. So, the historical proof is is complex. I mean, I, you know, I've studied about the Hiskos people who were going. There are little pieces yeah. that give you some historical connection, mm-hmm. and how the mythos was created. But the mythos is very much based in Egyptian. In the Egyptian story. That's interesting. So do you think it was the Egyptians who kind of had a creative role in this holiday? I do. I think, well, if you look at the time of Ramses mm-hmm. and his all of his conquering, he was doing, he had slaves. Somebody had to do all that building for him. Yeah. And then there was an invading, for, I mean, we don't know what happened. We don't have the... Also, my, my mom told me at the Seder that, like, the apparently there was a, a, a like, repeated migration from like the Levant region to Egypt because there was like drought and stuff like right. that. So maybe it's something that happened generation over generation. generation, and, generation and, and the whole notion of fear and, I mean, drowning baby boys, that's like, why do we have that in the story? You know, it, it's that, and because you always know who, the, you know, a child always knows who the mother is, but not necessarily the father, but the, mm-hmm. but the men were in danger because they would bear arms. And it's 400 years. I mean, it's... Yeah, it's a pretty... There's it, so many open questions. There are open questions. 
I have, for me, the story is not about whether or not I can prove the miracles and the story happened. It's more about what is the essential human truth that I'm being asked to believe in. And for me, as someone who, as again, because of what my family went through in an immediate sense, is the sense of displacement. What happens when you're displaced? And how can you maintain empathy in the face of displacement? And so I guess part of it is how we tell our stories, what pieces we take with us, and how do we use the Seder as a way to continue to move forward in the world? Yes, you're right. We're living, if you look globally, if we're up from 10,000 feet looking down, the world is in better shape than it's ever been. Mm-hmm. Except environmentally. Yeah. Well, when I say that, I don't, I don't say that to mean that the world is in a great place. No, I'm no, just no. Saying like from a literal, from a historical. Yeah, yeah, point yeah. Of view, I, that's, I agree. Yeah, it's that's true. the conclusion. Fewer, fewer wars, but, fewer. You know. But me as me as a person like on the ground <laughs> with emotions, I don't draw that conclusion. I understand. I know that. I know that the world still is a really. And it, it needs our help. Place. Yeah. And and the, the the other question I have for you is. Can we stand and watch? Does the Seder work in any way or the holiday of Passover work in any way as a cattle prod for action? As a way of saying, you know, if somebody else is getting beaten up, I got to do something about it. I don't mean necessarily literally beaten up, yeah. but being oppressed. I think it's I think it's hard to answer that question. I mean, I, I'm going to say yes, because I think any holiday that has has this explicit empathetic message, like, is is going to help that issue. But I can't say for certain. You know, mm-hmm. I think it's 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 a gray area. Is you it, never know. We, we never for know. For some people, for some, I'm sure there's people who have gone to Seder and really been like, I need to enact change. Like, I need to go do something right now. And they've gone and done that. But I think the reality of the situation is that's on most people. All I really have to say on that is that I think it should, and I think that should be the goal. And even if it's not, you know, fully, like, literally working, um, it's still, that shouldn't mean that that should, that that aim is lost. Like, that should, I think that should always be the aim. Or, I'm not a, like, religious leader, but. (laughs) (laughs) Well, like, I mean, I just got the idea that, like, maybe there should be a, an epilogue to the Seder that's also mandatory where like immediately after you eat the deal, even immediately after you eat the meal, you go do a pre-planned charitable activity. Like yeah, you have, some, you have like uh, some shovels ready to like go build a garden. I don't know. Something like that. I feel like that would be a cool, you know, like I, I don't know which holiday in particular, but don't Muslim people are like oblig or it's mandatory to give alms to the, don't, isn't that a thing? That, I feel like that should be a yeah. built-in part. Well, I mean, definitely giving giving tzedakah is always part of the yeah. deal, and that's and, and feeding the hungry. Mm-hmm. You don't know how many uh, requests come in for feeding people, poor people in New York that I get right before before Passover. Really? Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's and all these different appeals. So that means people know that. Yeah. Yeah. That, that actually makes me feel a little good about this holiday <laughs> yes yes absolutely this is your opportunity to help this you know when you when you know you're going to be eating this full meal mm-hmm. there are other people who are going to be hungry this is the time to help feed them okay all right i like that you like that 
I agree. Okay. Well, thank you both. This has been uh, quite a conversation. <laughs> thank you for taking the time to listen to Tehila Talks. For more information about Tehila, go to congregationtehila.org. Tune in next time when our teens continue to reflect on issues of the day through a Jewish lens.